are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit organization Win Women and in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global product lead at Win by Night and product manager by day. I remember the day I got my acceptance letter from Women in Innovation to come join as the growth fellow while I was getting my master's. When you start grad school or undergrad, so many times people ask you, what are you looking to do or why are you here? And so much of my trajectory was not being able to articulate this role in industry of innovation and then seeing when and the women that were involved doing those jobs that I didn't even know existed really validated that there was a space for this skill set and for this desire to think about the future of something and to rebuild it as it stands today. And that's also a really profitable endeavor. And so, you know, a big reason why I do this podcast and and play such a big role in talking about this industry and its ins and outs is because I don't think that that happens enough. And so as we wrap up the year and have just a few more episodes of the Win Win Podcast left in 2021, I'm very excited to kick off December with the incredible Jana Gilbert, who is the president at Luminary Labs, which is a top innovation consultancy. Only 25% of innovation consultancies are led by women. And what's also really amazing about Luminary Labs is that its CEO and founder, Sarah Holbeck, is also a woman. Jana has a perfect pedigreed background with a Columbia MBA, a Wharton undergrad, a tenure at companies like McKinsey, as well as in private equity. But what I love about this conversation is how validating it is to hear from her that the skill sets she really finds important in this space are those at the intersection of creativity and business. And this podcast talks a lot about gender, obviously, but I love that Jana and I really uncover that talking about gender and considering its role in innovation and in the workplace was actually not necessarily our personal natural inclination and really seeing how that's evolved. For the record, Luminary Labs is also hiring, so I strongly encourage you to check them out, and I know that you will learn a ton from this conversation today, as I know I did too. Jana, I have now known you for about two years in your capacity on the Women in Innovation Advisory Board, and today we will talk all about that, but also hone in on your incredible role at Luminary Labs, a strategy and innovation consultancy where you are president. So welcome. Hello. Hi, it's so nice to be here. I'm glad we finally found the time to make this happen. I know, seriously, that's the catch-22 of working with some of the most amazing women in this industry. Um, Academically and professionally, your career on paper is very analytical and what some may consider very traditional. You got your undergraduate degree at Wharton in finance and then your MBA at Columbia Business School and were an associate principal at McKinsey. So when you think about innovation skill sets or perhaps readiness for an innovation career, in what ways did that enable you to thrive the way that you did? And in what ways was innovation consulting different from the traditional consulting world and your other background? That's a great question. It is It is funny to look back and realize like how traditional I was on paper. I had not intended on that. In my, in my family, you went to college for the thing you were going to do. So I just sort of made a short list and realized business made sense. I didn't want to be a 
English professor, so I didn't study English, you know, and all of those different things. But my dad was an accountant. My mom was a speech therapist. And my brother was an engineer. Wow. So I ended up going to business school. If I, if I knew now, maybe I would have studied something a little bit more creative. <laughs> so I think a lot of the traditional consulting work that I did in the beginning was looking at data to try to understand where opportunity lies. And that's often looking backwards, right? So you're seeing like, what is history telling me about where opportunity is? And a lot of the innovation work is actually trying to find something that's new to the world, right? So you can't necessarily just look at data to find what the opportunity is. And at the same time, when you're dreaming of new things for the world, they actually need to be grounded in reality. Like what can actually be built? What can actually be exist successfully if that's from a commercial enterprise, it needs to make money. So to me, it's really marrying those two pieces together. And I learned a lot actually both through the innovation work I did at McKinsey, but also when I was teaching design students at the School of Visual Art, being immersed in an environment where people are actually coming at it from the opposite direction taught me a lot about how to shift my perspective and how their ability to see opportunity where a lot of people wouldn't. And then my ability to bring analytics to that to say, well, how do you actually evaluate this idea? How do you determine if it's good? And how do you find the information you need to adjust and iterate your idea so it can actually be successful in the world? And I think bringing those two pieces together is where like real incredible innovation happens. Well, I mean, I'm sold and I'm kind of now upset that I didn't take the route that you did. But I guess my question <laughs> is like looking back at it now and and having the career that you've had and knowing what you know, do you think there's an innovation driven major or innovation course of study that you think somebody can take? Oh, I absolutely think there should be. Right. I think I think there should be a way to teach people how to bring those two sides of the brain together. It is what like the great innovators that we all talk about just did naturally, right? Like Steve Jobs, that was like what he could do. He could just bring all these different pieces together naturally. We can learn how to do that. We can learn how to flex the side of our brain that maybe doesn't have those pieces. And I think there should be a lot more courses like that. I think it is the program I taught in, some of what they were trying to do, like actually having business classes in design school. Right. It's pretty groundbreaking. You don't see that very often. I think it is trying to teach designers more of that, those business skills. And I think business schools need more of the creative skills and the way to really like see opportunity in the world. Cause I can tell you, I never learned that. I was on the other side of that. So I have a, I have a BBA in strategic design and business management from Parsons school of design. Like the next logical question is how does one learn business in a design school? Right. And, and it's kind of like what you said. And in many ways, if I would have never changed the undergrad that I did. I always plug my school because that was an incredible mix of skills that I learned. But on the other hand, it makes it really tough to explain to people what it is that you actually learn. So th- there's definitely a downside to it if, if that helps. But eventually you did uh, end up in an innovation consultancy. Your first role at Luminary Labs in 2013 was as a client partner. So how did you make the decision to get out of private equity and how did you find Luminary labs and were you exposed to innovation consulting, you know, ahead of that outside of what you did at McKinsey, as you mentioned? My first four years at McKinsey, I was in the media and entertainment practice. Again, that was my attempt to be in a more creative space (laughs) in in a more traditional environment. And this, this is going to date me a lot, but when I joined McKinsey, all of the decks were in black and white. 
And the media group was the only group that did color decks. I'm not even kidding you. Oh my you. God. <laughs> I don't feel that old, but it's like a crazy thing to even say Innovation. right now. <laughs> Innovation. We had color. We were allowed to have color. So that was sort of my way of being in a more creative space and also in a smaller team. And then when the financial crisis happened, media and entertainment work goes away because they're actually fairly small companies compared to the investment banks and the other clients of, of McKinsey. And so I had a choice basically to do cost cutting for the financial sector or to go do this global innovation transformation program in Korea. Wow. So I got on a plane to Seoul and thus began my education in sort of like basic innovation principles. And it was an incredible program. We were working directly for the CEO and designing like a global transformation program for him and all of the different pieces. We got to work alongside and hire companies like IDEO and Fahrenheit 212. And that was just an incredible learning experience for me. After that, I had my first child and came back to the firm and realized that like the things I really wanted to do, which were to really pursue this innovation path, were not things that I could do in the way I wanted them to do them in a big company like that. And so I, I decided to, to find what's next. And I really thought I was going to go help them build and grow a small company. I wanted to apply everything I learned in innovation and help like really build something tangible. And I had not intended to stay in consulting, to be honest. I was, I thought I was done. Like why leave McKinsey and go do consulting? To, to do more else? consulting, right. right. <laughs> so I was, I was pretty surprised by it, but I met um, our CEO, Sarah Hollebeck through a very thin thread. And I was really inspired by her vision and the kind of leader she was. And I realized I could help build and grow Luminary Labs while continuing to do consulting and maybe admit that I like consulting and maybe I was good at consulting and that was okay. Right. It's, it's two in one because, you know, throughout your time there, of course, you, you took on this president role. So you, you've hit it with a double whammy. But, you know, going back to thinking about innovation consulting, uh, when people think about innovation generally, they typically imagine this blue sky thinking, big ideas, but innovation can be seen as simply not feasible, which is some, why sometimes I think it gets like a fluffy or an a bad rep. So what do you believe it takes to operationalize and actually execute on innovation? I hear you. I have, I've definitely worked with innovation consultants who almost feel like numbers are like the death of creativity, right? <laughs> like if we try to talk about, you know, what are the projections look like or what is it going to take to build this thing? It feels like you're killing their creativity by asking some of those practical questions. Um, I also think there are a lot of really wonderful, beautiful ideas in a PowerPoint deck and no real idea of what it takes to get them done. Um, and it's a lot of hard work to actually take a great idea and make it happen. But I think that's where the magic actually is. I think it is in that translation of a really great idea into the execution mode of things. And that's a lot of what our open innovation programs are. Like we spend a lot of time up front in the research and design phase and thinking about what the strategy is. But a lot of that is also understanding, like how can we actually make this work in the real world? What do what do solvers really want? How much money is it going to take them to, you know, participate in this program? What kind of information do they need? And so we spend a lot of time on like what the making it real aspect of a program looks like. And I think that's really hard to do as a consultant with other projects because the realities of working in a company, like, you know, this, you deal with this every day. <laughs> it's, it's, yep. it's much more <laughs> difficult than what like consultants ever really understand. So I think the closer we can get to understanding what it takes to actually make something happen and not be afraid of constraints and not be afraid of trying to figure out how to work around things that might be in your way and what those roadblocks are, I think that part is really important. 
And so tangibly, do you, you know, require your consultants to go in and be, I guess, quote unquote, in person with the work? Or how do you ensure that they're actually, you know, seeing that execution end to end? Uh, that's a great question. We have actually never been on-site consultants, uh, which for me was hard because I, you know, spent seven years on airplanes. On a plane, yeah. <laughs> I was just like telling my dad this morning that I have not been on a plane since January of 2020, which for mm. somebody who spent seven years, you know, on a plane twice a week at least, that was crazy. Because I really believed in it. I believed in the, like, we co-locate with our clients because that's how, like, we really understand what's going on. But I've learned that that's actually not necessary. I think you need to be smart about when you need to be together and mindful mm-hmm. of what those moments are. Um, and this is obviously before the pandemic opened up the world of Zoom and our ability to, to be together more virtually. But what does it take to actually, you know, get something done, I think is oftentimes making sure you understand for us, like things like legal implications, like what, what do the lawyers need and enlisting the people who might put up roadblocks as people who are actually helping you navigate around them. Right. And really right. looking at them as partners and having people involved as early in the project as possible. Right. So if they can be there when you're conceiving of the idea, they can actually help you design it so it can actually get done as opposed to you like fully baking something and then saying, here, we want to do this. And they're like, well, you can't because of these three reasons and it actually blows up your right. whole idea. So we always try to get those those types of stakeholders as it, like have a seat at this table as soon as possible and have them actually be a part of the team. And then they're they're actually part of the people trying to move it forward as opposed to just trying to stop it. Yeah, it's such a fine line because I can tell you, you know, in my experience and in my day-to-day role, sometimes you you almost want to cut them out at the beginning because the thinking is, wait, I just want to, you know, have a free thinking flow and then I'll 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 convince them. And then I think that that actually that that's very misguided and naive because by the time you get to legal compliance and all those partners, but at that point, when you've put in all that work up front, it feels so personal when they tell you, you know, there's no way you can, <laughs> you can go forward in this. So, yeah, I think bringing the the people along the way from day one is is really important. And and curious about whether you feel the same thing with the numbers, right? Earlier, you mentioned that to some some consultants, you know, numbers kill the creativity. Do you bring in numbers from the beginning, even in that design research stage of innovation? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the project and what the ultimate goals are of the client. And different clients have very different ways of thinking about, you know, what they're after. So the the public sector versus the private sector are going to think very differently. But I think when you're evaluating, even when you're at the evaluating concept stage, if you're working for a private client, you need to really do that early work on what is the business case. And a lot of the way I think about it is like, what are the biggest risks to this not being true? Every time you come up with an idea, whether or not you realize it or not, you're making tons of assumptions, right? And you totally. actually want to capture those and say, well, which of these assumptions, if I'm wrong, like blows up this project? And that should be both how much something costs, how much revenue you're going to get, sales channels, like all the things if you were to think about like a you know, business model canvas or something like that. Like you're making all of these assumptions and you have to understand really early on, like what puts your idea at risk. Usually that should even happen at the concepting stage. And you you want to like have your like level of fidelity of your business case to match the level of fidelity of the idea, right? So you don't need to like create detailed spreadsheets, but you should know like your main drivers pretty early on. You know, it makes me think a lot about uh, last year. I tell the story a lot in this podcast. So excuse me if you listen to it every week, but you know, 
this podcast for me started out of the fact that I actually had several offers dropped to innovation consultancies last summer, right as the pandemic hit. And the reasoning was like, we're on a hiring freeze. We don't know where our contract is going. All very, you know, reasonable, reasonable things to happen. But in my mind, I remember being like, this is a time where we need innovation most. Why is this when it's being dropped? So curious to know, you know, where you were probably around March 18th last year. And, and how did you handle everything that that came out? as a result of that? That's a great question. And I bet all those people are kicking themselves now for not hiring you. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Um, So we, I think we left the city on March 13th. My kids' school shut down that Thursday at the very last minute. And, you know, my immediate thought was like, how do we just keep this company together, right? Like all these employees have their jobs, are counting on us for their livelihood. And that was sort of like my immediate thought. Like we just, we, we can't let this ship go down, right? Because there's just too many people that I really care about, quite frankly, and I want to make sure that like they can be successful. And also obviously worried about their health. We were all in New York City as a New York City based company, really grateful that I worked with kind and wonderful clients, right? Who were like, tell us how you're doing. Looking back, you're like, how did we get through that? And at the same time, I knew that I was safe and healthy. And I could work from home. And I didn't have to risk my life every day to help save other people like, you know, first responders did. So it's sort of a strange mix of gratitude and every day just being really hard at this time. Yeah, 100%. Um, as a company, you know, a lot of our programs were public facing. So we had, you know, a project that was supposed to launch that spring for high school students to build and design CubeSats. And, you know, these students were all being, at this, you know, the same thing that we were, which was just being thrust into a new world of remote school. The teachers were overwhelmed. So we had to really rethink a lot of our projects. We had many things that were supposed to launch that spring. And they were under contracts that could not be modified. So wow. we had to we had to get we had to get really creative and innovative in like how we were gonna run these projects as well. And it meant sometimes having to make some trade-offs. But you know, within within the new reality we were in, we were able at least to work with our clients how to make those trade-offs and still, you know, get these projects stood up and going and and not lose too much time on them because everything we're working on is the problems that matter, as we say, so important things that we didn't want to just completely stop. And you touched on this, you know, throughout this uh, conversation, but you are overseeing Luminary Labs relationship with the U.S. Department of Education. And after mm-hmm. seven years of supporting their work, you were recently awarded a five-year contract to support their experimental design and advanced research projects accelerator. So first of all, congrats. Thanks. Two things that really stick out to me here. One is the length of time, especially as you are in a consulting capacity here, and also the immense challenge and impact you have had and and have the capacity to create. So I guess to start unpacking all of that, what sort of complex problems are you solving for in the realm of education and in the future of education? Sure. So obviously, there's a lot of talk about the future of work and how can we provide students with the skills they need to have more successful career paths. And there's so much opportunity to do that in a way that's different from the way we've all thought about education in the past. You know, a lot of us grew up, we you know went to high school and then we went to a four-year college and got a very expensive degree that may or may not have anything to do with what we wanted to do afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, myself excluded, obviously I already said I went to school <laughs> to do the thing, but it's just cause I didn't know any better cause I grew up in Florida and Florida is always the problem. I'm kidding. If you're a listener <laughs> from Florida, I love Florida. <laughs> so 
We work with a division at the Department of Education that works on career and technical education, which is what used to be called vocational education for some people. Um, but it's it's so much more than what it was when a lot of us were in high school. It's really teaching advanced skill sets now. So cybersecurity is career and technical education, um, as well as some of the things that used to be there, like cosmetology. So there's a lot of really advanced skill sets out there, and these can open up so much opportunity for students. And we have like this great opportunity to create programs that teach students these new skills, provide professional development to teachers who might not have the training to teach these programs and to really help get students onto better career pathways. Um, and that's, that's what I'm really excited about. We also work with adult in adult education through the U.S. Department of Education, which is another huge area of opportunity for a very underserved market. Um, very little money goes for towards adult education in this country. And it is, if you think about it, a group of learners who have been failed by K-12, right? There are people who often do not complete their K-12 education and probably not through any fault of their own, right? And a lot of them have trauma from that experience. And if we can engage them in educational opportunities, there's so much that they can obtain in terms of new career pathways. Um, so that part is really exciting. And that's a program we just finished called the Rethink Adult Education Challenge, um, which is about pre-apprenticeships, which then gets people into apprenticeships, which then gets them into all these great career opportunities across many different industries. Um, and it really focused on your non-traditional learners to so trying to bring in people who are not normally seen in apprenticeship programs and giving them opportunities to find a better future. I think a lot about, you know, what are life or death industries? And sometimes when I'm having a really tough day at work, while I know the immense pressure and kind of responsibility that my company holds as a, a large banking institution, I always think like, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not curing cancer here, so it'll be okay. But thinking about education, I would consider it a life or death industry. But with that comes, again, so much responsibility and so much probably regulation, I, I would imagine. So I'm curious about the name of the program that you're working on is has the word experimental design in it. So curious to see how you're you're managing that flexibility and that experimentation with the fact that you you literally have millions of people's lives at stake here. Well the federal US Department of Education has like a different role than state departments of education, right? So we the the federal department can actually direct curriculum. So that is that is not done at that level. It's done at the state level. We cannot create it or or prescribe it in any way. So it, in some ways, it almost gives us the freedom to really think about like, how can we inspire and engage um, schools in entirely different ways? How can we make these programs exciting? How can we offer resources? And a big area of opportunity for us is thinking about like, what are the opportunities between the public and private sector? Right. How can we make those connection points to really elevate what's possible for students? How can we help them find job opportunities? How can we help them connect with people who are actually doing the jobs that maybe they want to do? And they never even imagined themselves before, right? Because the students, it can be just one small experience that changes their whole life, right? Like maybe they had exposure to somebody working at NASA that looks like them and they've never seen that before, right? So I think it gives us a lot of opportunity just being exposed to this industry. And I mean, I've always been fascinated by you and this industry and your career trajectory, because the truth is coming out of high school, I thought my options were going to study political science or business or computer science. And, you know, 
spoiler alert, I didn't end up doing any of those things. And, and it was really when I was exposed to women in innovation and women that were working in this industry that I didn't even know that existed, that's when it inspired me to take the plunge. And like I said, I I come from a background of privilege and opportunity. So I do think it's really interesting to have that exposure element. In your specific trajectory, when I think about the fact that you're a president of an innovation consultancy, that's still incredibly rare. So, so I know you mentioned meeting Sarah, who runs Luminary Labs. Curious to see what role did seeing a woman in that position play in your own innovation trajectory and inspiring you to take on the leadership role that you did in the company? That's a great question. You know, I had never thought, to be honest, that I was impacted that much by the gender of the person that I was working with or the makeup of of the body of people above me. But now working in a woman-led company, I realize how all the things you have to bring and all the additional things you have to carry when you're in a male-dominated environment, I don't have to carry anymore, right? You don't have to prove yourself in the same way, you get the same opportunity that men often do where somebody looks at them and sees potential. Right. And I, I felt that a lot more to actually have somebody who really believed in me. And I was not always having to work twice as hard to prove myself. And then that gives you so much more freedom to experiment and to take on new opportunities because you're not exhausted by that constant proving of yourself. But I don't, I didn't even notice I was carrying with me and right, and I and I have a lot more privilege too, because I'm a white woman, right? So like there are all the other more marginalized groups out there who don't see people that look like them in leadership positions who are still constantly having to bear that burden every day and most of their most of their opportunities yeah, you know, I always think of myself as an accidental feminist because I think <laughs> until like a few years ago, if you would have asked me about gender, I would have been like, yeah, I am a woman like so what my gender defines nothing I was completely that way, so I was my first job I worked in finance. And I was the only like female for most of the time on like the professional side, right? Everybody else was in administration or HR roles. And I was like, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter if I'm a woman or they're a guy, you know? And, and I look back and I, I just realized that that was a little naive, right? I didn't. And, and I know that I actually got paid less. I was not given all the same opportunities, my male colleagues, even though I was rated really high. Um, I remember at one point, at at McKinsey, somebody in my class sitting down with me and telling me all the things that I needed to know about being successful there that I had no idea about, right? Because nobody had taken me under their wing and shared this with me. And, but that was just natural that like other men were looking out for him and saying, here's what you need to do to be successful here. You like, I just didn't have that. So I have, I think like you, I, I have never used that term, but I think a little bit of an accidental feminist and working in a female led company you also see like the the men who come work with us, they are they are true feminists, right? Mm-hmm. They're real supporters of women. They want to see women be successful. And that's wonderful. You know, and so we want we actually want to bring more men into the company who can be a part of that. I completely agree. And it's one of the many reasons I love and support Win because I think, you know, at every level of our leadership, we have men. And I've had men on this podcast, not not by themselves yet, but um, but definitely come <laughs> in and, and join on the conversations. But on our finale of the win-win season, the previous season, we had Lynn Povich, the author of Good Girls Revolt and one of the most prominent figures in women's rights. And she talks about a trigger point, which is when you have that like aha moment of, wait a minute, something isn't right here. So, you know, you and I talk about being accidental feminists. So when did that trigger moment happen for you? When did you realize, huh, this may be a gender thing and a gender thing exists? That's a good question. You know, you think I, 
I dealt with a you know bad incident of sexual harassment early in my career, and it was during the Monica Lewinsky years. And it was really clear to me that if I said anything about it, I would be the one whose career was harmed, not the person who was responsible for it. So I kind of kept it to myself and I soldiered on. You would have think that would have been the moment, but it wasn't. I think there were a lot of small moments leading up to it, like the, you know, sitting at a table and having like the male partner taking credit for all the work I did when I was sitting right next to him and not even like referencing me as like the manager who led all the work Um, and all those tiny moments. And, you know, like women I knew who had gone out of maternity leave and come back and all of a sudden they're rated lower and things like that. But for me, it was probably coming back from maternity leave and having my client who I had been told to go all in on stop working with us. Like they had basically fired all their consultants. There was no opportunity. Like I was basically knocking on doors trying to find opportunity and there was none. And then I was told pretty clearly by, I think, a, you know, an honest and caring partner that nobody's going to make room for you on a team and you have to basically get on the road again. And I was like, I had a, you know, a new baby and I just, I realized then that like, this just wasn't going to work and why there were so few women in senior leadership positions, despite a third of the incoming class being women, because being a woman at a more senior level is far more difficult than at the junior levels. Um, and I think this is a, you know, fairly egalitarian environment in a lot of ways. You know, I felt like a fair amount of respect. So I think, I think that was one of those moments where I was just like, this just isn't working. I think what ends up happening is when the women that do stay, stay, there's often that, that one spot for that token woman, which actually pins women against each other. And so yeah. I'm, I'm really curious about like, you know, now you work, like you said, in a company that's filled with women. Do you feel like the queen bee syndrome has gone away or, or how has that environment really changed the way that women cooperate? I remember feeling like, you know, the women, like, two generations ahead of me, they had to make themselves almost look like men, right? They wore boxy suits and things that looked like ties and they had to really adopt. And very few of them had children, right? And right. those are the ones who like really broke through the first time. And the next generation were able to be more feminine, but they still had to work like the men. And the women I knew who were successful had spouses who did not have high powered careers, which was not always the case for the men, right? But the women always had husbands who were able right. to be home more. But I found that they, if I didn't want to do things the way they wanted to do, it was like I was judging them, right? Like, I don't want to be on the road four days a week away from my kids. And it was like, almost like they felt like it was passing judgment well, I had on to, their right? decision to do that. Right. But they had to, right? Like, mm-hmm. they didn't have a choice, right? And I respect that they had to do what they had to do. And so now I'm, I'm trying to be cautious of that because I can right. find myself like <laughs> falling into that trap where like, well... I worked all these hours and I did this. And that's a really dangerous trap to be in because we should always be trying to make it better for the next generation. Right. So I think it needs to be really focused on like, what do I wish was true? Right. So we have an employee who just went on maternity leave this week and trying to think all the time, like, well, what, what do I wish was done when I went on leave? How do I wish I felt supported? What do I wish this looked like? And so I think that's what we need to do because it's very easy to sort of like forget that when you have gotten through a certain point. But I think being really mindful in the last year and a half have made us have to think more deeply about a lot of topics and a lot of things we took for granted and power. And like, what does that mean? Things that like, I think a lot of us never thought about before. And I think as a woman, like we owe it to the other women to keep making the path better. 
I completely agree. I mean, it's something as simple where even in my own much shorter career than yours, where I took so many unpaid internships. And then when I heard that, you know, the Gen Z was rising up against unpaid internships, I was like, what do you mean? We all did them. You should do them too. Don't be ungrateful. And I very quickly realized like, you're right. It's, it's such a toxic, yeah, just because we had to do that doesn't mean it was a good thing. And like, you know, it closed a lot of doors for a lot of different people to get work experience. So I, I totally, totally hear that. So I guess then before we leave, I'd love to have you look forward in the crystal ball and ask you, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? So I've listened to your podcast, so I know you always ask this question. (laughs) It is honestly a question I struggle with because I'm the kind of person that believes that you should be doing today what makes you happy for today and not doing something now for like your next step. I've never Mm. been like, I'm going to take this job for like the next thing because I don't know what's next. And I think doing good work and surrounding yourselves with great people it leads you to places you wouldn't know. And I think that's what's kind of beautiful about like life and careers is that like, I don't know where I'm going to be in 10 years. I think in a month I'll be, you know, hoping, you know, to do like the next stage of, of work. But I do hope that in, in 10 years, that there is a lot more diversity and leadership in this field, that there are more women, but honestly, more women of color, more women who look different than the leadership that you see out there right now. I think the impact we can have in innovation, if we can look different in 10 years than we do today, will be amazing, as well as opening up like so much opportunity for people who deserve it and should have it. Um, so I think there's a lot of work to do there. Um, I hope that for my clients, a lot of the programs we're working on now, like we will see changes in the world because of the things they're putting into place now, because people who care and are passionate are willing to do the really hard work to create these programs because they believe in 10 years, like there are going to be people and jobs and having, you know, careers that they wouldn't have had otherwise if these programs didn't exist. And I hope I'm still doing meaningful work with like a great team of people. Yes. I love that. Well, thank you so much for coming on and joining me today. It's been a real pleasure and I'm sure I'll see you in one of our many win meetings to come. (laughs) Looking forward to it, Zoya. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakal. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.